Who here is familiar with the poem Yomu Yabasha? Anybody ever see this before? Yudha Levi Yomu Yabasha? No. So Yomu Yabasha is a poem by Yehuda Levi that is sung often on two separate occasions. I mean, it more, it's often sung at a circumcision, at a grid. They often sing this or recite or sing the song. Traditional. First of all, who is Yehuda Levi? Let's start with that. Who is Yehuda Levi? No, he's much earlier. Yehuda Levi is pretty early. He's I think he's uh, 12th century, I believe. It could be something like that. Maybe 13th. He's early. And um, I don't have the exact dates. Oh, it says May 11 and 12. Okay, right. So it's 11 and 12. Right, exactly. So it's early. And uh, he wrote a many piyutim, many poems. He wrote a lot of love poems. And he wrote a lot of religious poetry as well. He's probably the most famous uh, of the... Uh, poets. Maybe the most famous Jewish poet who ever lived, actually. Maybe outside of King David, but he's a... Uh, and he's uh, one of the, really one of the greats. Yom Yabasha is also recited at a different time. Last night we had a program here at Risha on sh- songs of Shira Shirin. Broly Madawai, with two of his uh, musicians came. It's terrific. And he, he does a lot of Sephardic beauty, and he's it's, totally other world of Sephardic piyut. At the end of it, I spoke just very briefly and I taught this song, actually. But I'll tell you the Yomu Yabasha. Yomu Yabasha, what is the relevance? Why are we looking at this? Yomu Yabasha, when I was a kid, so we, the synagogue in which I grew up, the rabbi, the young rabbi from, I think, Torvadas, one of the issues, anyway, he had a particular interest, though, in, in prayer. So we, some of the customs of that synagogue were a little different than your normal standard synagogue. He would introduce some of the special poems that were written on the holidays, special poems that are written, which nowadays you can almost never, any place says them. Special poems for the night, called, which we said, Maravot, and we also said a special poem, which is recited on Pesach before the Shemona Esrei. We recited, I believe, on the first and second days of Pesach. I think both days. We recited on the Shabbat of Chol Moed, Shabbat of Pesach, and we recited it on the seventh day of Pesach. The seventh day of Pesach, we recited. Um, this poem, Yom Yabasha. Yom Yabasha, as you can see on the page, so Yom Yabasha is, talks about the day in which, begins Yom, Yom the day, Yabasha the day that the depths, the water, the deep waters became dry, were dried out. On that day, Shirach Adasha Shibchu the redeemed ones sang a new song. Here, 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 come here. Here, take this. Two things. These two pages here, and take Tagado. Thank you. So, so this is, there was a custom to sing this, to say this piyot, just before the blessing of Gal Yisrael. Has anybody ever experienced that? Anybody? No, never. Now, nowadays you can't even, it's hard even to find it, but 
the, the first days of Pesach, the poem that is recited on the first days of Pesach is begins with the words Brach Dodi. Brach Dodi. What is Brach Dodi? What does Brach mean? Brach, run away. Run away, Dodi is my, my beloved one. Brach Dodi. Now why, why is that recited on the... And it's recited in the blessing of Gal Yisrael, actually, just before the Shemona Esrei. So Brach Dodi is the, uh, the, is the last verse of Shira Shirim. That's how Shira Shirim ends. Run away, my beloved. Let's see how they translate here in the Tanakh. Everybody has a Tanakh. Song of Songs. Song of Songs. The first of the Megillot. In this translation, it's on page 1738. 1738, 1739. No, I take that back. 1740. The last verse of Shir Hashirim. Rachdal diut mechalotzi. Oli ofer hayolim avarei b'samim. Hurry, my beloved. Actually, brach does not mean hurry. It means run away. Flee, my beloved. I know why JPS says hurry. Flee, my beloved. Swift as a gazelle or a young stag to the hills of spices. That's the last verse of Shir. Who's, who's doing the talking over here? Shir Shirim is a, it's recited on, Pe- on Pesach. That's why we had the program last night. And uh, so the Song of Songs is an unusual book, actually. I see that Michael Fishbane just came out with a very big work of, on Shira Shirim, the JPS. I haven't shown show me last night. I haven't seen it yet. In any event, the little, little Shira Shirim, the little book of Shira Shirim, ends with the verse, Run away, my beloved. Shira Shirim has two lovers, a man and a woman, who are in conversation with each other. They, they never seem to really meet. Every time they're about to meet, something happens. Famous, one of the famous, one of the most famous moments is that when this lover, the man, is knocking on the door. Koldo di do fake. Very nice tunes for that as well. And she's already in bed. How can I get up already? I'm lying in bed. Blah, blah, blah. So finally she gets up. She runs to the door. He's gone. That's the Koldo di do fake. Rabbi Soloveitchik has a very, one of his best things he ever wrote. Koldo di do fake is an essay which is, starts at that point of departure. In that essay, he also talks about his view of the Song of Songs. And just recently, we had a, one of the lectures we had recently, a lot of good things happening. You should, you should go to them. We had a lecture on Song of Songs by Erin Erin Lee, Dr. Erin. <coughs> the position she took on Song of Songs was not so different from Rabbi Salvation's understanding of Song of Songs. She brought different text, but fundamentally it's the same kind of understanding has to do with these constant back and forth, the constant something's, something's, the absence, as it were, is transformed into something positive. Space for the other, space for the divine, and all that. It's not so different from Rabbi Salvechik's take on Song of Songs. Many, many years ago, my wife said something to me about Shira Shirim, which I agree with, and it's very different than the other what I just mentioned, which strikes me as not, doesn't feel right to me. And that is, 
The book ends by saying Brachtodi. The last verse of Shir Hashirim is Brachtodi. What's interesting is, Flee my beloved. Now, I didn't bring in these, uh, the poems that are recited. I mean, no one says them anymore, but recited, maybe some Hasidim do. But recited on the Passover. Brachtodi, in the hands of the poets, actually, I think gets at the true understanding of Shir Hashirim. That's They're different. Each one has a slightly different idea, but the basic idea is the same, which is this. Run away, my beloved, until. Odd. And the point is, the custom of saying Shira Shirim on Pesach. Why do we recite Shira Shirim on Pesach? So, what Devar suggested, and I fully agree, is that the point of Shira Shirim is not about is not about two lovers who have this wonderful relationship, but every relationship requires withdrawing back and forth and all that. But rather, Brachtodi is about something different, which is two people who write for each other. The problem is the time is not right. They're not ready for this yet. That's actually how Soul of Songs ends. Right? That's, that's the point of it. And the poems pick this up. Flee my beloved until, until, until someday you're going to come back. Someday when I'm ready, you're going to return. Which, of course, is completely appropriate for Pesach. That's exactly the point of Pesach. Pesach is not the end of anything. Pesach is only the beginning. Pesach is actually, in the Torah, not even described as a day of, a day of joy. Day of joy is in the rabbinic sources. The days of joy in the Torah are two. Passover is not one of them. Shavuot is a day of joy, v'samachta b'chagecha, and is um, Sukkot. Because these are culminating days. These are the end of something. So therefore, these are days of, these are days of joy. Passover is an opportunity. Passover is about freedom, so freedom to make choices. But we're not assured that the choices we're going to make will necessarily be positive. But we have the freedom to make choices. So on Passover, we are reading Shir Hashirim, which ends with Brach Toldi. Brach Toldi, run away means not run away forever. Run away until the time is right. And that's what the poems, that's what the Brach Toldi actually, in the poems that are recited on, those who say them, the set of poems Brach Toldi, even has a special Nusach for it as well. I remember as a kid. Those are the first days of Passover. On the seventh day of Passover, the custom was in the very same place, in the blessing of, the blessing is Gaal Yisrael. In fact, if you think about it, the very blessing of Gaal Yisrael contains within it the same thought, at least as the, 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 the text that we say in Gaal Yisrael. Are you familiar with Gaal Yisrael? the blessing before the, the, the morning before Shemon Esrei, before the Amidah. It ends with a little, with a prayer actually, which is not part of the original text, but the text we have is to Yisrael, Kuma Ezrat Yisrael, Yisrael, Hashem Shemo Yisrael, Hashem Yisrael. So the prayer at the end of, and you say the Shmon Esrei. So the prayer at the end of Gal to Yisrael, Kuma Ezrat Yisrael, is it, oh, Rock of Redeemer, Rock of Israel, arise and save Israel. 
So Tzul Yisrael talks about a time, we're talking from a space where we're not saved. So we, we, we are praying for future redemption. It's not just a remembrance of past redemption. It is a prayer for future redemption. So we, we, we are in an unredeemed state. So in that context, that's, what, that's where the uh, tradition, Ashkenazic tradition, to recite, maybe Yisraelim have it too, to recite these poems at that point. Brach Dodi in the first days of Passover talks about come back when it's right, come back when it, we're waiting for you, you know. And then Yomu Yabasha, Yudah Levi, on the seventh day. So I just wanted to just briefly, before we get to the Seder, so last year before Passover, so I wanted to, here's a copy of, everybody has a, yeah, take this. And oh, I have my, I got it. I got it. Okay, here you go. This, okay. This too. So Yomu Yabasha is, I want to say one thing about Yomu Yabasha, one of the great poems. I mean, most people are not familiar with it, so in any event, don't feel bad. But, um, so it talks about see in, in, the, in our tradition the day that we talk of when, what day did we actually cross the sea so according to the tradition the Torah never said what day by the way it doesn't say but the tradition has it that the day we cross the sea is the seventh day so on that day in the synagogue in the shul we read the Torah we read the Song of the Sea. We read the, we read the Exodus on the seventh day of Pesach, and we read the Song of the Sea, Az Yashir Moshe. That's the Kriyat HaTorah for the seventh day of Pesach. So on this day, that talks about crossing the sea, see, turning into water, giving a dry, dry path through the sea. So Yahweh wrote a poem, Yomu Yabasha. So this poem is recited on that day. Yomu Yabasha Nebchum Mitzurim. I want to call your attention. It's a terrific poem. I'll teach you a little song for it too, by the way. I sang it last night, the very end of the. So, Yomu Yabasha Nebchum Mitzurim, Shirach Adasha Shibchug Yurim. It starts in the beginning. Now, interesting is that this particular song also has certain references to Shira Shirim. So, it's very interesting. Shira Shirim also factors. And you know, Levi is always choosing verses from the Bible, he plays with them in very ingenious ways. But he chooses verses from the Bible, and generally, it's not overly complicated. I mean, the language is very beautiful. It's not overly complicated, like the Ashkenazic, like Kalir. It's impossible to understand. This is not impossible. So this is a Yom on the day, he says, at the time when Israel crossed through the dry waters, the water became dry, the path, right? At that time, Shirach HaDashah Shibchug Yulim. The Gu'ulim, the redeemed ones, sang a Shira Hadasha. They sang a new song. So, because they, 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 the song was composed at that very time. It wasn't something they had been taught beforehand, he says. It was a spontaneous response to being redeemed. That's what Yehuda Levi says. That's, his, that's the tagline of the song. Shira Hadasha Shibchug Yulim. And then he goes through in the beginning, he makes all kinds of references to to song, right? Well, I can't yeah, to explain this fully, we would require an entire class. But in the middle of the song, it's very interesting, he says the following. He talks about, on the one, two, three, four, fifth line down, he talks about the fact 
that those, referring to the men certainly, who are entering into your covenant are circumcised upon shortly after birth. So that first thing he talks about is he mentions circumcision over here. Right. Not the fifth line. The fifth stanza. The fifth stanza. The next, the next one, the next two are very interesting. I wanted to mention that in the context of the Torah. It says the following. The sixth stanza. They demonstrate, it says, they show ototam are their signs. They show their signs to all, all who would see them. What does that mean? On the corners of their garments, they put on gedilim. What are gedilim? Fringes. So it's a, it refers to a tzitzit or a talit. They wear a talit. Talit, Yudah Levi says, is an, is, an, is an outward sign. They demonstrate to the world, circumcision is not an outward sign. But talit is an outward sign. They're both called a sign, he says. So these people, these shirach adashah, shimchug yulim, these are the redeemed ones who sing, who sing, who sing to you a new song. The next paragraph, next two paragraphs are very interesting. It says of Yudah Levi. Lumizot nirshemet, hakirnad var emet, lumiachotemet, lumiaptiwim. It says, Lumizot nirshemet, concerning whom is it, is it, is it, I would say, recorded? About whom can it be said? Hakirnad var emet, he talks to God. Hakirnad var emet, recognize the truth. What does that expression, recognize the truth? What do we have a similar expression? Do you rec- recognize the truth? Where in the Torah do we have a similar expression? That's right. Well, who actually said it? Tamar says to Yehuda. You know, familiar story of Yehuda and Tamar, right? So Yehuda, Tamar is his daughter-in-law whom he sends away because his two sons have died. He promises that he should marry his third son, but he has no intention. So she, after many years, after Yehuda's own wife dies, she dresses up like a prostitute and he sleeps with her and she gets pregnant. But he doesn't know it's her. So when he finds out it's her, he commands that she be, that she be, that she be executed. She be burnt. Take her out to be burnt. As she's being, but when he slept with her, he gave her, he, 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 he said, she said, you have to pay me. It's my business. He says, I have the thing, I'll send you something later on. She says, no, no, give me something now. So he gives her three things. He gives her, he gives her, he gives her which probably means a coat, literally strings, a coat. He gives her his seal, and he gives her his uh, his, his staff, his staff. Three things. But as she's being led out to be killed, she she sends him a letter, a little note, or she so she tells him, tell him, tell me, how can I recognize, please, right? Lumiach, Lumiach, what's exactly Lumiach? That's exactly the language, chapter 38. Lumi, I think, Who is the possessor of this cult? Ptilim, literally cords. Who possesses the staff? And who possesses the seal? So she shows him that it's his. He, he could deny it, no one knows. So he says, it's true, he says. Tzadka many, it's true. 
it's true that these are hers. He knew her not again. Now, there's many things to say about this. He confesses that the children are born, and she has twins, actually. Peretz and Zerach, and Peretz is the ancestor of King David for Judah. Yudah Levi plays with the story in this poem, actually. He says, he talks to God. It's very striking. He challenges God. He says, listen, about whom is it written? Please, God, hakir no dvar emet. Recognize the truth. So ingenious, actually. What does it mean? What does chotemet and and and, and mean in the poem? Chotemet is circumcision, and petiwim are tawit tzitzit. So God, let me ask you a question: Who represents you in this in the, in this in this world? Who is singing your song? Who sings about redemption? Isn't it us? So therefore, if that's the case, why are we in exile? Why are we suffering? So then he continues, V'shuv she'nit l'kadsha, you should take her back again as a wife, he says. V'yal tosif l'garsha, don't continue to, 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 to divorce her. He plays off the verse in Yehud and Tamar, Judah didn't know her anymore, which he had translated the other way. He didn't stop knowing her. Rashi has two opinions, what al tosif. He takes the other way. It's interesting, by the way, he also is interpreting maybe the Chumash, that when Tamar sends Yehuda the message, let me ask you, to whom are the cords, to, to whom are the staff, he takes that probably, he's reading it as, maybe midrashically, maybe it's Pshat, as she is actually confronting him. Let me ask you a question, she says, Big Shot. Who really takes responsibility for this family? Is it me or is it you? Who was who, who, the possessor of this staff and the seal, which is the symbols of leadership, the symbols of kingship. So then he continues, so that's the poem, Yehuda Levi, it's actually calling for a future redemption. And then it says, The ones who love you have exalted you. That's which comes from the Song of the Sea and is the ending of the Shira Chazashah. That's why the custom was to read this particular poem on the seventh day of Pesach, just before the blessing of Gaal Yisrael, right after Mi Chamocha. Mi Chamocha Be'lim Hashem, right? Shira Chazashah Shemchug Yulim. He picks up on that. So obviously it was written with the intention of reciting it, reciting it at, that, at that point. So this is actually the custom on the seventh day of Pesach, which in our tradition, Chumash never says it, in the tradition is the day of, that we actually cross the sea. So Yehuda Levi writes the poem, writes this poem called Yom Yabasha. It's very, very famous. You've never heard of it. Okay. What can I tell you? It's a whole world of you. The poetry is, I mean, it's very now in Israel. The point is now in Israel there's a rebirth of interest in the poems and the songs, actually, of the especially the world of the, uh, of the uh, Sephardim because it was pretty much lost certainly the Ashkenazim had no idea about this and there's also a deep interest in the various melodies that were sung over the last many hundreds of years in these various countries and Morocco, Afghanistan, Iraq, Syria, all that this whole this world and this is the poem of Yehuda Levi for the seventh day of Passover. So that's Yomu Yabasha Nebchumit Sulim.
Now there's actually a very nice tune for this, which is not Sephardic. It's very Ashkenaz. It's a Praslov, the Chassidim. It's very simple. Maybe I'll teach it. Yeah, what do you want to say? Right, you see, even in this poem, by the way, right, this poem itself, the reason I mentioned it last night, the poem itself has several, uh, several uh, connections to, 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 to Shira Shirim and the kind of Midrashic interpretation. Well, Shira Shirim is inter- interpreted on one level as the love song between God and the, uh, and, the, and the Jewish people. Whether that was the initial intention of the author is a very good question. So it doesn't sound that way. But it certainly is read that way in terms of this relationship, Israel being the woman and God being the man in the poem. And Shira Shirim is interesting from a different perspective, which is it's really the only book we have in the Bible which is written largely from, the, from a woman's perspective. Most of the talking there has been mostly centers around the woman, much more than the man. It's very unusual in that. And that actually, it describes this relationship in much, in, in, in much, in much bigger terms. It's much, much bigger. So it's, uh, it's quite interesting. So should I teach you how to have the song? Do have something to sing on Pesach? I'll say just teach you how to sing. Last night, Roly did most of the singing, but at the end of it, I wanted to teach you one song. I'll teach you one, one little song. So you'll, I, we won't sing the whole thing. I'll sing the beginning of it, and I'll sing uh, the last two, last two uh, paragraphs, last two stanzas. It goes like this. Yom Liyabosha Nebchu Mitzurim Shira Chadosha Shibchu Giyurim Hidbarata Betaramit Ragwe Batanamit Parameh Shuramit Yofu Banorim Shira Chadosha Shibchu Giyurim Shira Chadosha Shibchu Giyurim That's all song. It's very simple. You got it? But try again, Lester. The shub shenib the kadisha, the alto sif the gasha, hale or shimsha, venosu atzlalim, shira kadosha, shibhu giulim, shira kadosha, shibhu giulim, yididim romimucha, shira kidmucha, miha mocha, washembo elim. Shira Chadosha, Shibchu Giyulim. Shira Chadosha, Shibchu Giyulim. That's it, right? You got it? Diri diri da da di da dam, di da 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 dam, di da da di da dam, di da di da dam. Shira Chadosha, Shibchu Giyulim. Shira Chadosha, Shibchu Giyulim. That's it. Okay. It's a very catchy tune. Once you get it, you can't get it out of your head. It's very catchy. Anyway, that's Yehuda Levi. Greatest, really. Yom Yabash. That's the seventh day of Pesach. Okay, now, let's turn our attention to the Seder, which is the first day of Pesach. Outside of Israel, first two nights of Pesach. Everybody have a Haggadah? Elizabeth, do you have a Haggadah? Here. All right. I don't want to repeat what I said in any other classes, so it's something different. Although what I'm saying is I repeat, I've said many times in the past, nothing, not all new stuff. So let's get to the, uh, let me get to the, let get to the basic text of the Seder. This I've talked about many times, let's see if we can say something new. 
the, the, the Seder, first of all, let's get with the words. Seder means an order. Let's start with that. So, the night of Passover, there is an order. It's fair to say that, first of all, the Seder is without unquestionably the most significant Jewish ritual that we have. Nothing's even close, I think. It's also the most observed Jewish ritual that we have in one form or another. Not all Darim are created equal, but there people have different takes on the Seder. Why that's the case is an excellent question. Part of it, no doubt, is the fact that it's a ritual performed inside the house. So it brings the family, family, extended family, friends, whatever, people come together. It's performed around a, uh, a, a meal, which is a very important part of the Seder. It's a very traditional meal in the sense that it has certain things that we eat have been around for thousands of years. Uh, so for these reasons, among others, it is probably one of the reasons that it's the most performed Jewish ritual. It's obviously the central Jewish ritual, and we call it a Seder. So let me just begin by discussing briefly the idea of a Seder, what, what, what the Seder is about, which, which is on two different levels. One is, what actually is the Seder? What, is the, what, are, we, what, are, what are we ordering on this night? That's number one. And number two, beyond the specifics of the night, what are the uh, larger implications of having a Seder? Here, take this. Thank you. I'm sorry. No problem. So I would say the following. Just in, in, in what it, there is an ordering principle of, this, of the Seder. Everything has an ordering principle. The simplest ordering principle of the Seder, what I'm going to say many of you probably know, some of you I'm sure don't. So we'll just start with the basics and we'll move forward. The basic ordering principle, the most basic way to order the Seder, and this is ancient obviously, it's found already in the Mishnah. The instructions for the Seder are largely found in the Mishnah, which was redacted around the year 200. So you're talking about, that's a long time ago. Redacted then means it exists before then, obviously. This goes way back. The basic ordering principle of the Seder is what we know as the four cups of wine. The four cups of wine function to order the Seder. Let's start with that. Now, what are the four cups of wine? Let me say something about the four cups of wine, which you may not have thought about. The four, there's a mitzvah, the mitzvah talks about drinking four cups of wine. According to one view, the five cups of wine. Our practice is to have four cups of wine. The four cups of wine are not just four cups of wine, but they have a particular function at the Seder. And they function in what is known in the halachic language as a kosher bracha. A kosher bracha is a cup, cup of blessing literally, but a kosher bracha it refers to something, usually wine, that is drunk in conjunction with doing some kind of mitzvah. Now, not every mitzvah that we do is done with a cup of wine. Right? So, most mitzvot are not do with a cup of wine. You put up mezuzah on your door, you're not drinking a cup of wine. But many of the mitzvot that we do, do have attending with them a cup of wine. And we give the most obvious two examples, which everybody is familiar with. First is Kiddush, and then is Havdalah. Kiddush and Havdalah, what is the mitzvah of Kiddush? The mitzvah of Kiddush is to declare, let's say on Shabbat, to declare that today is the Sabbath, and that this day of Sabbath 
is a remembrance of the fact that we left Egypt and to declare that the day of Sabbath is a remembrance of the fact that God created the world in six days and rested on the seventh. That statement is what we call Kiddush and that statement itself is formulated in terms of a blessing. The blessing, what do you mean a blessing? Blessing is the technical formula. It starts with the word Baruch, has God's name. If it's a longer blessing, it ends with Baruch Hashem. So on Shabbat, the mitzvah of Kiddush is essentially Friday night. That's the mitzvah of Kiddush. It means when Shabbos begins. If you were sick and you slept all Friday night and didn't eat, you got up Saturday morning, then you make Kiddush Saturday morning. Same, the same blessing. So but it's not really at night. It's really when the day begins, but the day begins at night. So you make Kiddush. The blessing for Kiddush, it starts, there's some custom to say certain verses that are not part of, that are really, not really part of Kiddush. The blessing of Kiddush starts with Baruch HaTah Hashem, Elokeinu Melech HaOlam, Asher Kishar B'Mitzvotah V'Ratzavanu V'Shabbat Kachachah B'Yavah V'Ratzon Hinchilana, when it goes on, Zikaron L'Maseh B'Reshit, the remembrance of creation, Tzichilana Mikrai Kodesh, Zeichu Itziat Mitzrayim, a remembrance of the Exodus, Givana Vacharta, the chosenness of Israel, etc. Baruch HaTah Hashem, Mikadesh HaShabbat. That's a blessing. Within the blessing, you mentioned that it's Shabbat. You mentioned the significance of Shabbat, creation, and Exodus. And you end with the blessing, Bless me, O God, who sanctifies the Sabbath. If you made that blessing, you made Kiddush. But before you make the blessing, you make another blessing. Right? What do you say before that? Savri Baruch Hashem Hashem So you make a blessing on wine. You make a blessing on wine because you're going to drink the wine. But before you drink the wine, you make a second blessing. You make a blessing we call Kiddush. So the blessing on the wine, you make a blessing. By the way, if you drink a cup of wine right now, you also make a blessing. Because the halacha says every time you eat anything, you make a blessing beforehand. And the Gemara says, If you took, if you ate without making a blessing, ma'al, what does ma'al mean? Ma'al means to trespass. Ma'il is when you take something that doesn't belong to you, something sacred that doesn't belong to you. So the Gemara says, if in this world, the world doesn't belong to us, it's God's world. But we have a right to partake of God's world. But the way we partake of God's world is that it be a blessing. So if you eat without a blessing, you're taking things without, that don't belong to you. You're partaking in God's world. So the blessing, that's true of everything you eat, essentially. I mean, that's true of medicine and things like that. But if you eat food, make a blessing to demonstrate that you recognize that in some sense it's not yours. That's the idea of a blessing. A blessing on food. So if you drink a cup of wine, you also make a blessing. Any time. But at night, in addition to the blessing on the wine, you make another blessing. We call Kiddush. So the cup you hold when you make Kiddush, that's a kosher bracha. That's a cup of blessing. So the blessing of Bori Priya Gefen and Kiddush is not independent. Havdolah is the same way. Havdolah starts with Bori Priya Gefen. Make a set of blessings on the, on, the, on the wine or whatever you drink for Havdolah. On spices, on the flame. And then you make a blessing on Havdolah. Hamavdu ben Kodesh Lechol. Baruch it's Baruch. It ends with, starts with Baruch, ends with Baruch. It's a blessing. So with have but you're making the havdala over a cup of wine. A wedding, you go to a wedding. There's a blessing, two blessings, actually more than two. There's a blessing for marriage, kedushin. That blessing is recited by the one who does the kedushin, holding a cup of wine. That's not an independent cup of wine. 
You're making the, ble- the marriage blessing over a cup of wine. It's connected to a second blessing. Now let's think about the four cups of wine at the Seder. Two of the four cups of wine are essentially standard, standard, if you think about it. What are the four cups, by the way? This always boggles my mind, I must tell you. I hate to say this, but people that have Siddharm every year for years virtually no idea of what they're doing, actually. It's, just, it's, it's, it's truly astounding. You think people have kind of curiosity to ask the questions, and it, frankly, I'll tell you the truth, I fought the rabbis, basically. Instead of all the speeches, I'm just I'm explaining, if they, I'm not sure they all understand themselves, but, but the point is, why, why don't they actually try to explain this? It's so basic, you know? Anyway, I don't know. The four cups of wine at the Seder are four, coast, four cups of blessing. That is to say, they're each one connected to a, a particular mitzvah that we do at the Seder. And there are four main mitzvot at the Seder. I call them four. It's actually a little more than that, but I'll explain. How do you start the Seder? You start with Kiddush. The Seder begins with Kiddush, actually. That's why there is a custom, by the way, even for people that start sometimes, they start Shabbos early. You can do that. You can start Shabbos early. Like in the summertime, you want to wait till sunset, it's very late. So people like to start Shabbos early, which you can do, basically. But they don't do that on Passover night. Because they want the mitzvah of the Seder is at night, actually. And since Kiddush is part of the Seder, so many, many people wait to start the Seder until it's actually past, past sunset. The first, so the first cup, cup of wine is Kiddush. That's true of all the festivals. You make Kiddush. For Shabbos, you make Kiddush. You say Pesach is Shabbos, but so you make it Kiddush. That's the first cup of wine. What's the third cup of wine? Let's skip the second one for now. What's <coughs> cup, cup of wine number three is what? Cup of wine number three is after the meal. After the meal, what are we doing after the meal? We're saying Birkat Amazon. Birkat Amazon, the blessing, grace after meals. It means the blessings after the meal. The, 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 the blessing after the meal, Torah says you should eat and, and thank God for the, all the food you got. So we're very grateful for the food. And we say that. And Birkat Amazon consists of blessings. It's called Birkat Amazon. How many blessings are there in Birkat Amazon? Do you know? There are four. Three plus one. Four blessings. I can't get into everything now, but there are four blessings. Fine. Now, when you say Birkat Amazon, there's an option in Birkat Amazon. You're, you are permitted to say Birkat Amazon over a cup of wine. You must have seen on some occasions when Birkat Amazon is said by somebody who's holding a cup of wine. Usually it's done only when there's a a, 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 a minion. A minion. There's some interesting customs. I remembered when I was growing up as a kid, in my house we never did it, but when you had a lot of people sometimes in the house, you would say, Bricatabazon holding a cup of wine. And in the synagogue, I remember as growing up as a kid, that Shabbat afternoon, Sudash Rishit, but the, there whoever would, would make the say read the Bukatamazon in synagogue would make it over a cup of wine. And I remember very as a kid being amazed that when you make it at holding at Sudash Rishit over the cup of wine, if it ends late and you go to pray the evening service, you don't actually drink the cup of wine. 
they save the cup of wine for, for Abdullah, you're not supposed to eat after Shabbos, once sunset, once the sun goes down on Shabbat afternoon, you're not supposed to eat until Abdullah. So you make the blessing on the cup, like you, you, you make the blessing, holding it, but you don't actually make a blessing, you don't, you don't drink it. You just hold the cup of wine. So there you, here you're holding a cup of wine without even making the blessing. But you're saying the mitzvah over wine. That's the point. So anyway, that's a, so that on Pesach, or year it's optional whether you want to say Birkat HaMazon over a cup of wine, with one exception. On the night of the Seder, it's not optional. The third cup, the benching, Birkat HaMazon is made over a cup of wine, which we drink. That's cup number three. So cup number one and cup number three, cup number one is always done over a first blessing, Kiddush, is always over a cup of wine. Prakat HaMazon is an option all year round, except for the Seder. That's one and three. They're very standard. Two and four are different. Cup number two and cup number four are different. Now here's what's very interesting. I, I can see you never noticed this, but I'll tell you what it is. Now you'll see it. When you see it, it's so, so obvious. If you look at the... After we made Kiddush, okay? Then we have what page? I'll get to a second. So it's going to be fine there. So, after Kiddush, we engage in another mitzvah. What is the main mitzvah on the night? What I discussed so far, Kiddush and, and, and the meal, that's the part of the Seder, that's the part that we, are, that we are eating. Kiddush begins the meal. This is a very important point about Kiddush. Kiddush, you're not supposed to eat until you make Kiddush. I'll tell you why. Because if you eat before you make Kiddush, let's say, let's say Friday night, if you eat your meal before Kiddush, you know what you're doing? You're eating a Friday night meal. Okay? If you eat a meal with Kiddush, you're eating a Shabbos meal. That's the difference. Mm-hmm. So the, the meal starts with, with Kiddush. And if you think about it, from our perspective, it makes complete sense. Because if, when you go to some kind of event, okay? So you go to some fancy event, or you go to a wedding, or some big dinner, or something. Usually, you don't just sit down and eat. Usually, before dinner, they're serving something else. And usually it's drinks. Often they're drinks before the dinner. Or there's some kind of a smorgasbord or something. Some kind of... Before you enter right into the dinner, and very often there's a drink. So they'll come around with drinks. And that's the Shabbos, because that demonstrates it's a fancy meal. It's not a normal meal. The meal is not just a biological. A meal is a social event. So if, the more, if the meals are important, they'll serve drinks before the meal. So that's Kiddush, actually. Kiddush means we're having a special meal. We're not going to start with the bread. We're not going to start with the real meal. We're going to start with something to introduce the meal and to demonstrate it's a special meal. So that's the idea of saying Kiddush. So Kiddush is part of the meal. A meal starts with Kiddush. We start the Seder with the beginning of the meal. But then amazingly, we stop. We don't continue the meal. Even though we get up and wash afterwards. But we don't. We just dip in some, some vegetables. And we don't actually eat the meal. We, we, instead we do something else. We start to tell the story. That section of the Seder is called Magid, from the word Haggadah. In this particular translation, JPS, let's see where it is over here. This is on page... It really starts on page... starts with the Manishtana, really. starts with the Manishtana. Magid on page... This is a page... Can you see the pages? Page 7. 6 and 7. Halach Ba'anya, fine, whatever. Manishtana. Manishtana is found in the Mishnah already. Where does Magid end? Magid ends, goes on and on and on, and Magid ends with, on page 40, 45. Look at page 44, 
Magid ends with the second stanza, the second paragraph of the Havel. Another remarkable thing about the Seder is we actually start saying Havel before the meal. We finish it after the meal. We say the first two paragraphs of Havel, concluding on page 44, and after we stop, and then what do we say after that? We make a blessing on the bottom of page 44. Everybody see the blessing? It says, raise the cup of wine in the JPS. Baruch HaTo Hashem That's always a blessing. We bless you who delivered us and our ancestors from Egypt and brought us to this night to eat matzah and marar. God, you should bring us to other festivals, enjoy, etc. And we'll sing to you a new song on the top of page 45. Baruch HaTo Hashem Ga'al Yisrael. Bless you, O God, Redeemer of Israel. So that's a blessing. Ga'al Yisrael. What's next? Baruch HaTo Hashem Elokeinu Ma'ochalam Borei Priyagafen. So what is the Borei Priyagafen over here? Borei Priyagafen is the blessing of wine that attends another blessing. It's the same as Kiddush. It's the same as Berkat Amazon. Those are blessings with the additional blessing on the cup of wine. So with the Seder, there's another mitzvah we do over a cup of wine. That's called Magid. So the Magid, the second cup of wine, the blessing on the wine, is a blessing over, together with the other blessing, which is the blessing that we recite at the end of Magid. So the first blessing is on Kiddush, the second blessing is on telling the story, Magid or Sipur Yitziat Mitzrayim, the third blessing is on the meal, and what's the fourth blessing? Fourth blessing's got to be with another blessing, so let's see what they have. Here it gets a bit more complicated, there are different customs. Let's see what the JPS did. Yeah, the JPS is on page 65. Bottom of 65, the different customs, what to say. JPS has particular. Bottom of 65, top of page 66. This is Yishtabach from the Saturday, from the morning prayers on the festivals. It ends on top of 66, four lines from the top. Bless me, O God. What is that? That's a blessing. It's a blessing. It's a blessing we say at the end of Psuki December. And what's afterwards? Another blessing. It means that the Bari Priya Gefen is in conjunction with the previous blessing. What is the previous blessing on? What is this blessing on at the Seder? What is the mitzvah we do after, after the meal? One mitzvah. What's it called? We had to pick out one word. What do we say after the Seder? And we'll make a blessing on it too. Havel. Havel. This is a blessing on Havel. Havel and Psukit and Zimra all thrown in together. Praises. We at the end of after the meal we are saying the praises of God. We complete the four paragraphs of Havel. We add also Yishtabat Kochai, which is the end of which is the blessing of Psuke de Zimra, also Havel. Hodu Hashem Kito. These are a set of psalms essentially. But we call these, generally speaking, it starts with Havel. It starts with the first four paragraphs, Psalm 1, 15, 16, 17, and 18, four Psalms, which conclude with Havel. And this blessing is the blessing on Havel as well. And Havel is recited over a cup of wine. That's Bore Prochata Hashem, Okenum Malachalam, Bore Priyagefer. So if someone says, What do you do with the Seder? Oh, it's very simple what we do with the Seder. If, if, if we, we are fulfilling four commandments, four mitzvot of the Seder. Kiddush is first cup of wine then we tell the story that's the second mitzvah cup of wine then we eat the meal 
matzah, maror, apikomen, cup of wine, and we say halal, cup of wine. Each of the cups of wine is in conjunction with another blessing, and the blessings cover the mitzvah. These are four brikota mitzvah, these are four mitzvot that we perform, and therefore the four cups of wine are an ordering principle of the Seder. Let's start with that. Now we know what a Seder is. Now we think that was thinking about it more deeply about the idea of a Seder. I mentioned there are four mitzvot, but actually if you wanted to reduce them from four, we could say there are two, actually. Because of the four mitzvot that I mentioned, they fall into two different groups. The first two, Kiddush and the meal, they're, they're, that's what we eat. The meal starts with Kiddush, it ends with Birkat so that's the meal. So cup one and cup three are relating to the meal that we, what we eat. Cup two and cup four a, that means to tell the story and to thank God they're related to what we say so the, basically at the same with the two things that we do we eat and we talk but what's interesting is not the way you would normally expect it by that I mean there are four there are two different activities there's eating and there's talking you would expect if we had a vote let's say and I said what do you think we should do first should we eat the meal first and then let's talk about Pesach or Exodus or should we first talk and then eat and I'm sure we could have a dispute you might say well we better, we better talk first because once we eat we're not, no one's going to talk anymore on the other hand you might say let's do the opposite I think if we talk first people will be very impatient it's already late when's the food coming won't be. this way at least we'll eat we won't, won't be hungry then we can talk <laughs> so, so what do we actually do what we actually do is we do a funny thing we start with the meal we start with Kiddush. Kiddush is the meal. We even have a custom after Kiddush to get up and wash and to wash with the greens, the karpas. And then you're expecting, you had your Kiddush, you had your drinks, you had your appetizer, let's, now let's go to the, now let's eat. But no, we don't. Then we, we first tell, the, we're not going to eat until we first tell the story. In fact, the Seder plate is interesting. You put a Seder plate on the table and we're using the objects of the meal to tell the story. It's actually very striking. Part of the Seder, it's a visual aid to tell the story. Mm-hmm. So we tell this, this that we're talking. And we even start saying Hallel. We say the first two paragraphs of Hallel, and then we don't finish Hallel, we stop. And then we eat. And then we finish Hallel after the meal. The Hallel is in the middle of Hallel, you have the meal. Right in the middle of Hallel, you have a meal. So this idea of interweaving what we say and what we eat. That's what we call a Seder. It's an order. Ordered event means that we are ordering these two different activities. We are interweaving the two activities. And it's actually very interesting that we interweave the two activities. Because what we're really saying is that the, the meal, if, if, if you think about it more, more, more deeply actually, you open up the Chumash, what you realize is that in the Torah, when the Torah talks about the meal, the meal that we eat on, at night, what is the meal in the Torah that you're eating at night? It's obvious. The meal that you eat at night is the Paschal sacrifice. Paschal sacrifice is brought in the day of the 14th and it's eaten on the night, at, at night time. We don't have a Paschal sacrifice nowadays. We have something that stands in for the Paschal sacrifice, the Afikomen. We do have the things that attend the Paschal sacrifice. The Torah says you eat the Paschal sacrifice with matzah and with maror. We do have matzah. We do have maror. We even have the afikomen. 
you don't actually have the Paschal sacrifice, it's missing. Okay. But fundamentally, we try to keep the meal, we think of the meal as a special meal, one might say a sacrificial meal. In the Torah, the Paschal sacrifice was eaten in groups of, by families. In the book of Exodus, the family eats it inside the house. And the Jewish practice has been, more than any other holiday, that Passover is a Jewish, is a holiday that's observed in the home. Nowadays, most people, many people are flying away for Passover. But I remember 30 some odd years ago, I remember you remember this, for those who were around then, that in 1980, I think it was, there was a big snowstorm. And uh, many people got stuck. And never, they had to be at home for Pesach. They got yeah. stuck. What could they do? They were forced the to be at home. A cookie was done. It was very, it was a last minute thing. But you were stuck, and the bags were packed, and the airports were all closed. So, what could you do? A tragedy. They were forced to stay home for Passover. But, um, Passover is very much up in the Torah, the Kabbalah and Pesach. The Torah never explicitly talks about any kind of study that takes place that night. Of the verses that the Haggadah cites, you shall talk to your children, the questions, the answers. Most of them, I can't get into all the details now, with perhaps one exception, don't suggest at all, A, that the questions are specifically about Passover, but B, that these questions take place at the Seder. It's only general questions. Some of the kids are going to ask you, why do you do A, B, and C? But the rabbinic interpretation, at least, is that at the night of the Passover itself, we have a mitzvah to study the events, to try to really to tell the story, which involves asking questions. It involves, in the words of the Mishnah, Midrash. The Mishnah actually gave, gives us a text, and the only place we have such a command is to, be, to engage in what they call Midrash, Vidoresh Kola So the idea of interweaving the learning with the, with the, with the ritual performance, that is what the Seder is about, and I would say it's the most Jewish of all, of all rituals. The idea of placing study, education at the center. The idea of encouraging people to ask questions. The idea of bringing different kinds of people together. It's what the Seder is about. And always within the context of, this, of the ritual. And what's even interesting is that I would say two things about the relationship of, 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 of thinking, of study, to, to ritual. First of all, I think they're two different points, both of which I think are very important. One is that the ritual, the study, leads, leads you to ritual, actually. In other words, first you discuss what it's all about, and then you eat the matzah, you eat the marah, you have the festive meal. So the festive meal is a product, as it were. Now that we understand why, we are then going about to actually try to reenact it, to try to live it. We see ourselves as being there. So that actually, I say in the broader sense, the study is supposed to lead you to actually do something. It's not study which is divorced from and unrelated to action. It's study for the purpose of, in some sense, leading to certain behaviors, which at the state it takes the form of ritual. There's also the interpersonal, inviting people in, etc. But thinking should lead one to action, that's number one. And number two, I would say from the other side of it, that at least through the eyes of the Seder, I think, that action, the best kind of action, is one which people understand what they're actually doing. Of course, you can eat the meal right away. But the Seder is saying to us, what, what would the point be to go down the matzah 
unless you understand what the matzah represents. So therefore, the best kind of action, best kind of is action which is, has been thought about, which we understand, and we appreciate what it's all about. So the interweaving of these two things, not just random, but each one, I think, the two are very connected. The bringing those two things together, good, good deeds, action, together with, with, with thinking, with, with thoughtful um, involvement and, and, and questioning, asking you a lot of questions, and especially we encourage children to ask questions at the Seder, probably for a lot of different reasons, but I'll tell you one of them. The kids haven't yet learned what you're not supposed to ask. They have no idea, you know what I mean? So therefore, they're actually going to speak, they're not calculating when they ask a question, they're saying straight up, why what, what, what do you do this? It doesn't make any sense. So therefore, those are the difficult questions we have to be willing to engage with and try to figure out. A lot of them don't have, or we haven't thought about such good answers maybe, but nonetheless, we invite the questions. We do want the, the respectful questions, not what are you wasting your time for, but, no, but Sam, I'm sure it's very meaningful to you. Can you please explain to me why? That, that's, that's, that's the question of the so-called Chacham. I'm sure it makes total sense. I can't understand it. I know it's my, something wrong with me. Maybe you'll explain it to me. What are these rituals? What are they all about? That is the question of the Chacham. The Russia, a so-called wicked child, has the same question. Basically, doesn't say a nice word. What are you wasting your time for? That's no, has no meaning. So that we don't like, because the whole purpose is to engage at the Seder. But doesn't mean that his question is a bad question and I think that God does actually deal with that question. In any event, this is the idea of the Seder. Now there's another point about the Seder, which is a very important point. And that is that beyond the specifics of the night, beyond the fact that we have a highly ritualized event, extremely ritualized event, in fact, the song that is found in many of the Haggadot, I'm not sure it's in this one, yes it is in this one, it's on page number one, actually. Page one. The Seder sections. Do you see the Seder sections? Yeah. How many sections are there according to this little... It's a poem. There were many poems written about the Seder sections. This is the one that most famous. There are 15. I, as I say someplace in this, I've got of mine. I don't think that's an accident. That there are 15. I don't think so. How many, how many lines are there in the, in the, in the, in the Dayenu song? Probably 15. Probably 15 is right. The answer is 15. There are 15 lines in Dayenu. Here, Goldschmidt made a good point. Daniel Goldschmidt, famous uh, scholar, who did a lot of work on the Geniza. And he has a hypothesis about which I don't think is right, actually, but, uh, but it's very interesting. How does Dayenu start, by the way? You think it starts Dai Dayenu? No, no. No, it's not the start. Before that, the four words. Elos yells when he starts singing it. But before the four words. Kama Malot Tavot, five words. Kama Malot Tavot Lamakoma Reino. Right? Is that what it is? Let's see. Let's find Dayenu. No Jews in America know Dayenu. That's what they remember from the Seder. Dayenu. Dayenu is not actually really part of the initial, the original Haggadah. It's a nice too. It's a nice song. Can't get into this now. It's, but, it, but it's here, and people. It's, it is traditional. Here it is. Dayenu starts on. It's on page uh, thirty-seven. Thirty-seven. And the JPS put it in dark print. Exclamation point. For how many good deeds are we indebted to the omnipresent capital O? 
So Goldschmidt points out, if you think about it, it's obvious really, that ma'alot tovot. What, 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 what? 37. 37, yes. I said 37, right. See it? You're on the wrong side of the book. The book has two sides. Other side. The other side is, right. 37. It's in big print, you can't miss it. What does malot mean in Hebrew? What is malot? Malot are steps, that's correct. Malot means two things. For the word Allah means to go up. How many good things? But malot literally means how many steps? It's a pun. It's a play on the word malot. Steps. Why steps? Because what do we know? Which building had 15 steps? The temple. The temple has 15 steps. And what does the Gemara say about the steps of the temple? Who knows? That at each of the steps, I think on Sukkot, they would recite a psalm. Which psalm would they recite? There's a collection of 15 psalms. It's a collection. The book of Psalms is 150 psalms. Within the book of Psalms, there are a couple of collections. The most famous collection is a collection of 15 psalms. What are they called? How is six psalms, first of all? Shira Malot. Shira Malot, there are 15 of them. When we say after Birkata Mazon, it's one of them. But there are 15 Shira Malot. The Gemara says that each of the steps they would say one of the Shira, Shira Malot, Song of the Sense, right? The most famous, we know the one that often sung after, before Birkata Mazon. Shuvah Shema Shivat Zion Nayinu Kachomim. So the point is, what Goldschmidt says, these songs, <coughs> these Dayenu, he thinks was composed for the temple. And the reason he says this is because unlike everything else in the Haggadah, the Dayenu song ends with, if God had not only brought us to the land, if God had but now brought us to the temple, Beit HaBechira, it ends with the temple actually. So Goldschmidt suggests it was actually written for the, for the, for the it was actually performed in the temple. That it's, if it was performed in the temple, it's very, very old. Tabori, the other one who, who uh, writes about, there are many write about this, he disagrees, he thinks it wasn't actually performed in the temple, he thinks it's later. Okay. But it, it's written as if performed for the temple, perhaps. Probably, I think it's probably right. My intuition tells me, I don't know, proof one way or the other. So that's the song of us, that's the Shir HaMalot. Okay? So we have 15 steps, we have 15 Dayenus, and we have 15 steps in the Seder also. That's, that's a, it's not, probably not an accident that it's 15. In any event, the point I want to make is something else. The Seder is a very Seder order. Seder is a ritualized event. But the Seder, beyond the ritualized event of the Seder, is another sense in which the events of the night are a Seder. Because the idea of the Seder, what is the idea of the Seder actually? What is the core idea of the Seder? The core idea of the Seder, this is the basic idea of the Seder, is that what happened in the land of Egypt, okay? Because the question is, which essentially is the main question of the Seder, it's what the so-called wicked child is asking, 100% good question. Why, okay, we went out of Egypt 3,000 years ago, that's, that's very nice. Why should I turn my life around because it went out of Egypt 3,000 years ago? How does that speak to me? Who cares? Why is it relevant? So it's very old. How can it speak to, my, to me and my generation? How can it continue to speak to us after thousands of years? 
Sounds pretty crazy to run your life based on a story that happened so many thousands of years ago. That's the question. So the Haggadah sets out to answer this question. That's the main goal of the Haggadah, is to try to provide an answer to this question. And the main answer, I think there are two main answers in, at the Seder, but the number one answer is the following, I would say. It's not that the events that happened in Egypt per se, per se are, are, are that significant. But the reason they're significant is because the events in Egypt are a fulfillment of prior promises. And those promises we call covenant. That God spoke to Abraham in chapter 15 of Breshit and said, you should know that your descendants will be slaves, they'll be tortured, and they'll be strangers for 400 years. The nation that I enslaves, that enslaves them I will punish, and they shall return to the land in the fourth generation. That's a covenantal promise. And the fulfillment of that promise, because in the Torah, in chapter 15, the Torah doesn't specify a particular time. The Torah talks in generalities. But in the Torah itself, one of the two main fulfillments of that promise takes place in the story, in the book of Exodus, in the slavery in the land of Egypt. And evidence that this is true is because the language of the covenant of Genesis 15 is found in the first two chapters of the book of Exodus. The main language is the language of the description of what you have to endure to be covenantal is you have to be enslaved, avdut, inui, abused or tortured, and geirut, you're going to be a stranger. Having endured those three things of geirut, avdut and inui, then God will take you out, redeem you, and bring you to the land. The language of Gerud, Avdut, and Inui, those three terms, that triad of Gerud, Avdut, and Inui, appears in the Torah on six occasions. Six. Five? Yes. Five plus one. I'll explain in a second. Those in this Haggadah, this, uh, those are the first two essays. And I must say, immodestly, they're, they're very good. They really give you an insight into not just the Haggadah, because that really interpretation of what the five they appear six times five times they appear right one clearly next to each other the sixth time they're not one actually next to each other but nonetheless I claim it's the triad of the three the three appears in Genesis chapter 15 it's God's promise the covenant of the peace it's called the Brit the covenant of the peace is the three things you must endure to be covenantal know very well Abraham your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs. Number two, they'll be enslaved. And number three, they'll be tortured or abused for many, many years, 400 years. And then God says, after all that, I will take them out with a lot of possessions. And B, two verses later, I will bring them back to this land. Right? That's what it says. That's the covenantal formula of Genesis 15. Stranger, ger, Evet, Inui. Those three terms appear six times in the Torah. Five of them, one right after the next. How the Torah plays with them, the order of them. I talk about that. But the, the point is that the story in Egypt begins that way. Chapter 1. Pharaoh set taskmasters over them to abuse them. Inui. <coughs> Twice. Vavot and then Abdut, the next verse. Five times. Abdut. At the end of chapter 2, two more times Abdut for a total of seven. In short, those are two of the terms. Gare is not mentioned in chapter 1, as I talk about, but Gare is mentioned in chapter 2.
in any event, what's the point? So the point is that the story in Egypt, the events of Egypt, clinch this covenantal relationship. So the significance of the story in Egypt, on one level, and the main significance is, it's the story in which we became a covenantal people. And covenant defines our relationship between ourselves, individually and as a community, and, and, and God on the other side. The relevance of the Exodus is, it set the terms, it set the markers for an ongoing relationship. It's a covenantal one. Covenantal one means it imposes on us all kinds of, all kinds of commandments and restrictions and observances, obligations, etc. From the other side of it, the promise is you will be to me a, a nation of priests and all we people. That's the other side of it. But it comes with having, having accepted the covenant or born into this covenant, this defines what it means to be a Jew. So from that perspective, that's what the Agada sets out. Then the Agada makes another claim, second claim. You can take it or leave it, but it makes the claim that this covenantal formula of being enslaved, oppressed, being strangers, and God redeeming us is not limited to Egypt. It could actually happen in every single generation. History repeats at the, in, at, at the Seder. It's cyclical. It hasn't only happened one time, it's happened many times. But somehow we still maintain this relationship despite all the trauma and the difficulties, persecution, etc. That's, that's a claim of the Haggadah, okay? The claim itself is very striking, but I want to make a different point about both of those two claims. Namely, the larger claim of the Haggadah, the four cups of wine. And we even have a fifth cup of wine. Because in the Talmud it's a dispute if we have four cups of wine or five. The technicality, which I can't get into now, that's very interesting. I mean, it's all interesting. But the fifth cup of wine, we don't actually drink. We leave it on the table. We call it Elijah's cup or whatever. But that's a later business with Elijah's cup. But the idea of the fifth cup of wine is very important. The idea of the fifth cup of wine is that we see Passover, we see Pesach, we see that event. In addition to what I just said, there's another significance to, 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 that, to the experience in Egypt. The experience in Egypt, we claim, is the prototype for some ultimate redemption. That's the claim that we are making. In fact, this claim is not just made through the cup, which is, in a way, it's very secondary. The claim, I argue, is actually made through the very drashot, the key drashot of the Seder. I have to demonstrate that right now, unfortunately. It's a very interesting claim. But that's the claim. So there's another point. The point is the Exodus is important in and of itself, but the Exodus is a demonstration of our ongoing relationship, which someday we aspire. We're always aspiring to a time in which there'll be an ultimate redemption. We, see, we, 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 we prefer to see the world as potentially redeemed, as outlandish as that may, claim, may, may, may seem now. That's, that's the claim that we are making. Looking forward, and the prototype for that is... Pesach. So the idea of a Seder, I want to get back to the Seder. The claim of Passover, this is a core ritual. The claim is that the world has purpose and meaning. That's the claim. Maybe every religion makes that claim, but that is the claim. That God is involved in our, in our lives, in the lives of the people, even though sometimes it's hard to see. The claim is 
that there is an order. There is an order to this world. It's not Tohu Vavohu. It's not chaos. There is actually an order to the world. And if you want to think about this in terms of another day in which I think, at least on the level of practical level, folk level, really the opposite claim is being made. It's a different holiday that we have. I would say a minor festival, which is not minor. A minor festival, which is very important, actually, in which the opposite claim essentially emerges, I would say from the rabbinic understanding of this day, but from the folk understanding of this day, and that is Purim, which of course is exactly 30 days before Pesach. Purim is, I would say, a holiday of, 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 of disorder. Disorder. On the level of the pra- practical level, not on the level of the Purim meal, and reading the Megillah, gifts to the poor, that's the rabbinic construction of Purim, which basically sees Purim similar to Pesach. That's what a festival is. You have a special meal, you invite in people who don't have, you share with them. Torah defines that as Simcha. You read a sacred text, you read the Torah on the holidays, you read Megillah on Purim. The rabbinic conception of Purim is not distant from the rabbinic understanding of Pesach. They're basically the same. That's the rabbinic understanding. But the way Purim has been observed over time, that's very different. That's the observance of Purim of masks, of cross-dressing, of making so much noise during the Megillah you can't hear it, of eating the meal at the last possible second you could do it, of hitting people in the street, of stealing objects. All of these are well attested, by the way. And there ain't made these are very old. Of drinking to the extent that you don't know the difference between Haman and, and Mordechai which is already found inside the Talmud. In other words, the blurring of all distinctions is what it comes down to. There are actually two different points to the observances of Purim. Two. One is the blurring of all distinctions. Purim Torah, which makes a mockery of the Torah itself, which says you can have... The method of learning can lead you to a ridiculous conclusion. The obliteration of distinctions, cross-dressing. You can't know if it's a man or a woman. It's the way we... we, we, we the way we organize society, we organize society around, we claim that there is a Seder, there's an order to this world. People have different roles, men have one kind of role, women have a different kind of role. Okay, these things change over time, but fundamentally there's this distinction. And there are good guys and bad guys. When I was growing up in the Westerns, the bad guys wore black hats and the good guys wore white hats. Now it's more nuanced. But the point is, nonetheless, that's how we distinguish. The good people, they're bad people, they're men, they're women. There's a set of rules and a set of laws we call it Torah. And the, the world is a place of order. That's the claim. It is the basic claim, I think, of Judaism as evidenced by the Seder. But every so often we allow ourselves to think very bad thoughts, which is maybe the order that we impose upon reality is an imposition upon reality. Maybe reality actually is, is chaos. Maybe there is no order in this world or no purpose or no meaning. I know it's a heretical thought. So under the guise of being a little drunk or tipsy, we say, you know something, we allow ourselves, or the religion allows us to ask these questions. And I would say beyond that, the observances, the folk observances of Purim, strike me having another side to them as well, which is not just that they are different from the observances of Purim, but they serve in a certain way to actually undercut them. Making noise during the Megillah, at its core, means you can't hear the Megillah. Eating the meal at the last split second of Purim means you eat the meal after Purim. So the observances actually are not just putting out there a sense of randomness, 
They're also, in a sense, undercutting the law, which probably is another heretical thought that people might have. And maybe you never had such a thought. I have it all the time. That we live, people make up the rules. Okay, God gives the Torah, but the interpretation of the Torah is in human hands. We know that Achashverosh makes all the rules up for one main purpose to serve himself. It's all about himself. He has all kinds of rules. He has a rule, all kinds of rules. At his party, you can, you can do whatever you want at the party. Right? That's what it says. Except what? Do whatever you want at his party, except what he says, Vashti, come, come to my party. She doesn't want to go to his party. And then she's, she's gone, basically. She didn't show up at his drunken party. What happens if you do whatever you want? What does that mean? You do whatever you want, except it affects me. And you've got to wonder, the people that make up the rules, I don't want to say bad things before Pesach, but people that make up the rules, whom do those rules actually serve? I'll tell you a little secret. Usually the ones making up the rules. Poor people don't make up rules. That's very, very simple, okay? The people in power make up all the rules. So therefore you have to wonder, obviously, about the rules. Whose end are they actually serving? And on Purim we allow ourselves to ask the question, not just about Achashverosh. Under the guise of drunkenness we ask a different question about our own leadership, our own teachers, our own rabbis, our own teachers, our own leaders. The rules they're making up. Who are they supposed to be benefiting? Who do they really benefit? Now of course, when it comes to Esther and to Mordechai, and we know that when they make up rules, who it benefits? It benefits the people. That's how we know that. Because they're willing to die for the people. They're willing to die for their values. So therefore, we have to give them the benefit of the doubt. That's Mordechai. And Moshe is the same way. Save the people. Otherwise, wipe me out of your book. Okay. So whatever Moshe Rabbeinu says to me, I'll listen. Because I know that it's for real. That's Moshe and Mordechai and Esther. What about the other millions of, of teachers that we have? Who exactly are they trying to benefit? Hor- horrifying thought. But the fact, the fact of the matter is, my point is that Purim, on the level of folk observance, is disorder. There is no order. There is no Seder. The world is chaos. There is an order that's imposed. It's not an order within the world. It's imposed upon the world. That's the claim. But that's a minor holiday in the sense it does not represent... It's important to, 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 to be able to ask that, those questions. I think that's very important. But Pesach actually is the core Jewish holiday, and at its core is the stated belief that the world actually has a Seder. We may not understand it, we don't see it, but it's a professed belief that there is an order and a pattern and a meaning to all creation. And that's what Pesach is about. And I would say the other main holiday on the Jewish calendar, at least the way we live it today, and maybe have lived it for hundreds of years, it's not the main holiday of the Torah, I don't think. No. The other main holiday of the Chumash, I think, is Chagat Sukkot. I, they're, all, they're all important. But from our own life, our experience, I would say the other outside of the Seder night is one, and the other is Yom Kippur night. Nidre, Ne'ila, that's the other main. And there, on Yom Kippur, actually, as the Torah describes it, and as the rabbis explain it in the Mishnah, you have what's called Seder Avodat Yom HaKippurim. The Avodah is known as the Seder. In fact, it's a very complicated Avodah. But the fact of the matter is that sacrifice in general, the sacrificial service 
is known in the Talmud as Seder HaAvodah. In fact, the, that which is derivative, I would say, of the sacrificial service, certainly influenced by it tremendously, which is not the sacrificial service in the temple, rather the uh, prayer book. Our prayers are related to the sacrifices, three times a day, right? The th- sacrifices. What do we call the book in which we pray? The Sidur, or, or the, or the Machzor, which is the same. Machzor is a, a return cycle, a returning cycle. Both the Sidur and the Machzor point in the same direction, which is order. They actually order our day, but they also reflect the fact that we are appealing to a God who we believe that there is a meaning and a purpose in the world. So in that sense, the Seder is highly significant, and the term Seder is very important. Now we have only ten minutes left. Yes? I don't want to go on forever with this stuff, by the way. There's no, there's no end, you know. Before the, the, we came up with the, the way the, uh, a book on how to say it, that as long as you tell a story, you can do so in whatever creative way it used to be as you want. True, that's of course so. Mm-hmm. The Seder is the Haggadah. The way it's set up is, let me just respond. I'll respond in the next eight minutes to your point. The Haggadah, first of all, the Haggadah, it's always important in anything that we do, okay, what discipline it is, to be able to distinguish what is essential from what is secondary. That's number one. The Haggadah is no different. The prayer service is no different. As I said, the role of the teacher should be to inform us what is essential, what is secondary. The Seder has, the Haggadah has certain texts. There's a lot of stuff. When you open this up, if you don't, it's a mishbites. You get what's going on here. So it's very important to try to understand what is the key, what are the key texts of the Seder. One of them, without question, is the text that the Mishnah tells us to, to, to read, which is a remarkable decision by the Mishnah. And we carry out the Mishnah's command. The Mishnah says that the core text of the night of Passover at the Seder are the verses found not in the book of Exodus, but rather in chapter 26 of the book of Tvarim, Deuteronomy chapter 26, and we start with the words Arami Ovei my father was a wandering Aramean, and we, the Jewish people, read four verses. The mission says read four verses, V'doresh kol ha and engage in exegesis on these four verses. As I said, in this Haggadah, the first two essays are about that, 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 those passages. First of all, why choose those passages altogether? So I give several suggestions why it was chosen. It seems counterintuitive. You would say on the night of the Exodus, you would read a text from the book of Exodus. And what's even more bizarre is that the Haggadah itself provides us with some drashot. It provides us with a set of drashot. And the drashot take the form, most, almost all of them, not all of them, but the vast majority of demonstrating or explaining a verse in Deuteronomy or a part of a verse in Deuteronomy by the, through the citation of, of, of other verses in the Torah or elsewhere. Half of them are from the first couple of chapters of the book of Exodus. So you have a very bizarre enterprise taking place. You started with verses from Deuteronomy and it says, and this means X as it is written and the so-called proof text that is cited half the time is from the book of Exodus. Half the time. Not all of them. Half of them. So what is this? We're talking about the Exodus. You go to a text in Deuteronomy, and then you say, as it is written, 
and you go to so why go start with Deuteronomy start with Exodus what are you going this way for it makes no sense so what was behind the rabbinic decision so that's what I discussed I want to go get a chance to read this you should sit first two essays I think it's all interesting raises the million interesting questions but I would say the following first of all the and I give many different reasons here but the first point is just speaking to your point on the simplest level I don't think this is answer, answer actually suffices but on the simplest level they don't want you to actually read the story in other words the tradition doesn't want you to read the story reading the story you could open up the book of Exodus read the first 14 chapters read the first 11 chapters whatever it is but that would be in a certain way a passive act it's not as passive as sitting and watching your computer or something like that or watching TV or whatever but it doesn't really engage you what they really want you to do is to read only four verses and from these four verses they want you to extract from the four verses all of the, all of the meaning so one place where the Mishnah says you have to be Doresh, Midrash and the idea of that I think there are two elements to doing Midrash at the Seder one is that it forces you to actually think let's start with that you're reading a verse and they're inviting you to find difficulties in the verse and to try to come up with some kind of explanation which is satisfactory that's number one so therefore and that's why it's also with the Haggadah question and answer we don't want passivity in fact the Mishnah talks and the Gemara talks about how do you get people involved how do you get them wanting to ask questions that's very important so through the questions we'll arrive at some truth the Haggadah does provide you with drashot but they're not intended to be the, the end of the story they give you a case you don't have or will, will, will set you off in a certain way of thinking but obviously the night is a night of questioning and su- suggestions even the, the, the drashot themselves are very difficult sometimes to understand I don't understand what, what, why they're asking this question or what, 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 what are they trying to get at so the drashot themselves are grist for the mill they allow us to uh, ask more questions I think that's a very important point but beyond that I would some, so I say something else about the very enterprise of doing Midrash why is that the chosen vehicle for the for the Seder the chosen vehicle was not reading the chosen vehicle was what we call exegesis to try to derive meaning out of the verses to ask questions and from these verses to explain these verses to extract the meaning from the verses so the claim that I make I think I make an introduction to the Sagada <coughs> I don't remember it anymore but here's what I would say about Midrash Midrash assumes the following it doesn't mean anything goes let's start with that anything you make up I'm saying a nice Midrash you know what I mean that's not the rabbinic conception of Midrash the rabbinic conception is to actually look at the verse and to raise questions that from where we're sitting are good questions and then to try to find answers and the assumption behind Midrash here's the assumption behind it the assumption behind it is that these verses contain with, within them I would say almost, almost, almost unlimited possibilities that's the, that's the so that we, you can ask a question today and that question becomes part of Torah Shabbat Peh your question is part of this interpretive tradition and we are searching in the text that's the first place you search to see if we can resolve your question by virtue of this text or maybe looking at other texts 
maybe within the Torah, within the Bible, maybe extra biblical text. Maybe you want to answer it through study of archaeology or history or whatever, comparative Near Eastern, whatever. And that people bring different lenses to the text, but the assumption is that I would say that A, the text raises infinite questions, and I would say also that the text provides, or careful study of this text, provides us with virtually infinite ways to understand it. As such, and here's the point they make about Midrash, the assumption is that the Midrash, we're talking about ancient texts, say it's 3,000 years old or whatever, but the point is, the claim is that these texts continue to speak to us by virtue of our own questioning. In a certain sense, it's a response to the core question. The vehicle of the Haggadah and the idea of the Haggadah are actually the same, which is the core question of the Seder, I say the core question of, of not just the Seder, the core question of any, any, any traditional religious person is why, why does this matter to me? How do these things, how do they speak to me the way I actually am? I'm not living back in, in Mitzrayim. I'm not living in, uh, you know, the desert. I'm not living, I'm, I'm living in, a, I'm a Western Jew living in, in civilized, as we call it, world. It's not always so civilized, but okay. But that's how we're living. So, how to these, and the Midrash makes a suggestion that these texts continue to speak. The Midrash tries to bridge the past and the present by making the claim, the claim of Midrash, that these texts continue to speak, but in order to, for them to speak, you have to study them. That, that's the important point. That is the claim. And that we are all capable of, because all study begins with asking questions. So we have careful analysis, careful reading, and the idea of that Seder is that when you bring people together to study, something actually happens. Which I think, in my experience, is very true. I can say that in my, the nice part of my job is that, you know, you study a text together, often it brings people together, because we're all looking at the same text, and you hear it, you, you can hear the other person talking, you begin to understand, we understand each other better, but it also connects us in a very deep sense to, to the text that we're learning. We, here it's basically, it's not even doing the commentaries on, which are also important to understand how others, and others who had deep understanding understood it is always a good thing, but we have before us the same text. So we are confronting the same text that Rashi had, essentially. We may come up with different solutions. So the, the idea of Midrash, the vehicle of Midrash, is deeply connected to the idea of the Seder, which is the idea that, the idea of relevance. That's what the Seder is, is intended to, to, to grapple with, the relevance of, this, uh, of, of these texts and these, and these rituals to the way we are living. Yes? I would say I would say the study. I just conclude with this thought: the larger project of the seder and the general has to do with this kind of community. How do you create community? That's really what the seder is about. The seder is a ritual which creates community. The the ones who understood this better than anybody actually. I mean, the Zohar understood it, but the uh, early Christians understood it very well. 
communion. They have a different sense of community, which of course is the Seder. I mean, the Last Supper is, right? The point is the Seder, the idea of communion, that eating the meal together, eating together is not just a biological, eating together is a social act. And the fact of the matter is, we ask ourselves the question, what is happening at the Seder? Not what is happening, because I know all kinds of things happen, but what is supposed to happen at the Seder? It's a coming together of people to create a kind of mini-community, which centers around common rituals, people eating the same foods, they have a common, <coughs> discussing the, our past, the coming, discussing the future, looking forward to a, to, a, to a destiny, and above all, engaging with each other in a kind of in interchange of ideas, of study, looking at the text, trying to figure it out together, questioning each other. That's how, I think, the best way to create community. It's not about uniformity. I don't think that's a mistake. Community, a real community doesn't have uniformity. A real community has all kinds of different people. They are engaged in, in, in many things. They have common pursuits on some level. Maybe they have different beliefs about the end result, and maybe they have different ways to get there. But the willingness to hear the other person is what community is really all about. It's not really everybody being the same, which would be quite dull, but it's about giving space for the other person and creating, you know, by, by engaging in a common pursuit of, of truth to try to figure out, to try to get answers to all the questions that we have. That's very much at the Seder part of creating this little community it is the night in which the Jewish people become created, the night of Passover. The nation is created on Passover. So we are engaged in, in I would say, nation building, which begins with the, the, with the house, forget the nation, with their own communities, their own houses, <coughs> trying to create a sense, of, a sense of community. That, I think, in a nutshell, is what the Seder is about. There's so much more here, it's not even funny, but we'll have to stop. <laughs>